Good evening, everyone. Welcome to CSIS. I'm Kathleen Hicks. I direct the International Security Program here at CSIS. Um, I have the great pleasure of being able to introduce uh, the Right Honorable Theresa May, the Home Secretary for the United Kingdom. Before I do that, it is my responsibility to give a brief safety announcement. We feel very secure here at the center, but we take it as a matter of course to just remind you there are exits behind you. Uh, and their exits on the other side of me. In the case of any emergency, we'll exit out of the building if we can um, across the street um, and just follow me if it gets more complicated than that. Um, so without further ado, as I said, it's my pleasure to introduce the Right Honorable Theresa May, who was appointed Home Secretary of the United Kingdom in May of 2010. In this role, she is responsible for oversight of immigration, citizenship, and domestic counterterrorism. Um, obviously, since the November attacks in Paris, uh, these issues are a forefront for all nations, particularly those in Europe. And we look forward very much to hearing from her today about the UK's plans and policies with regard to domestic counterterrorism. Uh, Theresa May was the Minister of Women and Equalities uh, from 2010 to 2012 as well. She's held several cabinet positions within Parliament since 1997, including as a member of the Shadow Cabinet from 99 to 2010. And from 2002 to 2003, she also has uh, the notable um, case of being the first female chairman of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming the Right Honorable Theresa May. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And I'm delighted to be able to be here in Washington and to be speaking here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, for more than half a century, this think tank has been at the forefront of international research and analysis, helping decision makers navigate our volatile and unstable world. In the five years since the start of the conflict in Syria, Millions of people have lost their livelihoods, their loved ones, the country they call home. Syria's neighbors have provided sanctuary to the vast majority of those who have fled the country. But when more than a million people from Syria and elsewhere sought to travel to Europe last year, the debate changed. The problems of failed and fragile states, not just in Syria, but across the Middle East and Africa, are no longer confined to those regions. Not only has this created one of the greatest humanitarian challenges in decades, it's also sparked a political crisis within the European Union. It's forced countries to re-examine their approach to migration and border security. And it's made the threat from terrorism more complex than ever before. According to last year's Fragile States Index, a terrorist or insurgency campaign was being waged in nine out of the top 10 failing states. These power vacuums provide a conducive environment for terrorists, organized criminals, and insurgent groups. Groups that do not play by international norms or humanitarian laws. They're able to exploit the lack of effective governance in these countries, unchallenged by corrupt and weak law enforcement agencies, and they're able to manipulate populations resentful of widespread abuse of human rights, promising an alternative to the dysfunction and injustice they already suffer in their daily lives. Exacerbating this changing picture are the same technologies that we all use, exploited by terrorists and organized criminals. 
Today, there's no need for face-to-face -face or even direct contact. A cyber criminal sitting in Moldova can attack the online bank account of a pensioner in Minneapolis, while a terrorist sympathizer in Raleigh, North Carolina, can communicate with Daesh in Raqqa. In the UK, we've seen a 15-year-old boy inspired by terrorists in Syria, jailed for encouraging violent extremists in Australia to conduct a terrorist attack on Anzac Day. This then is the new reality, a web of global threats that feed off the instability of conflicts overseas, that exploit modern technology, and which sadly are all too often supported by misguided individuals at home. Last week, a sickening vi video was released online by the terrorist group Daesh. That video featured a small child who, in full view of an audience, was seemingly made to kill others. You may not have heard about this video, just as you may not have heard about similar videos with gruesome content, often targeted at Western leaders, including our Prime Minister and your President. But there will be some people from across America who will have watched this video and been captivated by the twisted message. Daesh is an organization that revels in its own depravity. It has killed hostages in the most horrific way possible. It has murdered hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children, the vast majority of them, the same practicing Muslims it purports to represent. The threat from terrorism is not new. When I first sat down at my desk as Home Secretary nearly six years ago, the main threat was from Al-Qaeda. Now today, Al-Qaeda's senior leadership may have been weakened, but that threat has not gone away. Its affiliates in Yemen and in Northwest Africa remain a serious concern. Al-Shabaab in Somalia recently claimed an attack on a plane flying out of Mogadishu Airport while Boko Haram in Nigeria continue to wage a brutal insurgency against the government. But the hard truth is that Daesh is operating in a way that we have never seen before. At the start of the conflict in Syria and Iraq, some likened this to the Spanish Civil War or fighters that went to Bosnia and Afghanistan. But the reality is we've never seen this number, demographic or range of ages traveling to take part in a conflict, nor have we seen this scale of territorial ambition before. From the UK, we believe that around 800 people of interest to the security and intelligence agencies have gone to Syria and Iraq, including women and families. Independent organizations estimate that up to 11,000 foreign fighters have traveled to Syria from the Middle East, to this, we can add the thousands from Africa, Asia, Australia, Europe, Russia, and the former Soviet Union. In 2014, in its bid to establish a global Islamic caliphate, Daesh in Syria and Iraq directed, inspired, or enabled around 20 attacks in other countries worldwide. In 2015, there were almost 60 such attacks from Paris to Sydney, as well as over 200 attacks carried out by Daesh branches, including those in Libya and Egypt. There have been 16 attacks in Europe over the past two years, the majority inspired or directed by Daesh. 
A number of the terrorists that carried out the attacks in Paris last November received training in Syria. And in Sousse, in Tunisia, a young man murdered 38 people at a beach resort, 30 of whom were British holidaymakers. It was an evil and senseless attack, and the largest loss of British life from a terrorist attack since the London bombings in 2005. In the UK, over the past 18 months, the police and the security and intelligence agencies have disrupted seven terrorist plots to attack the UK, all either linked to or inspired by Daesh and its propaganda. The number of people arrested for terrorism-related offences has increased by over a third in the last year to a total of 315. And as the threat has continued to morph and adapt, the strength of our security at home has prompted terrorists to seek out new methodologies, new evasive methods, and new spaces in which to carry out their crimes. And we must, in turn, adapt our response. In the UK, we recently announced that we will make new funding available to our security and intelligence agencies to provide for an additional 1,900 officers at MI5, MI6, and GCHQ to better respond to the threat we face from international terrorism, cyber attacks, and other global risks. To ensure they have the powers they need to do their jobs in a digital age, we're committed to introducing legislation that both protects the security of our nation and the public's private lives. Our draft investigatory powers bill brings together all of the powers already available to law enforcement and the security and intelligence agencies to obtain communications and data about communications. It introduces a double lock on the way these powers are authorized using Secretary of State approval, backed up by the decision of a judge, and it ensures these powers are fit for the digital age. The government's now received three parliamentary committee reports on the draft legislation, and we're carefully considering their recommendations. However, I want to make one thing clear on a subject that resonates on both sides of the Atlantic. The British government believes encryption plays a valuable role in today's society. It helps keeps people, keep people's personal data and intellectual property safe from theft by cyber criminals. It helps our economy grow and prosper. But as President Obama has said, we cannot be in a situation where technology is also used by terrorists and criminals to escape justice. The government has a responsibility to protect national security and ensure public safety. Communication service providers have a responsibility to their customers to ensure their privacy. Together, we can find a way that achieves both. But the Investigatory Powers Bill is not the only new legislation we've introduced to keep our citizens safe. We've introduced a power to temporarily seize passports of those suspected of traveling to engage in terrorism overseas. And we've extended our ability to refuse airlines the authority to carry people to the UK who pose a risk. The legislation is designed to underpin the delivery of contest, our world-leading counter-terrorism strategy. Pursuing terrorists, protecting people and infrastructure, and preparing in case of an attack are three pillars of that strategy. But crucially, it contains a fourth pillar, aimed at preventing people from becoming radicalized in the first place. Because unless we address the circumstances in which radicalization and terrorism thrives, we will always be fighting a rearguard action against it. 
To do this, we work with sectors and institutions where people are at risk of radicalization or where there are opportunities to intervene. We work in prisons, with educational institutions, in communities and online. We support community-based initiatives up and down the country that aim to challenge terrorist propaganda and communicate an effective counter-narrative. We work with internet companies to remove terrorist propaganda online. And we've established a program, channel, designed to protect and divert vulnerable people who we know are at risk of becoming ra radicalized. This work can be controversial, but it's too important to ignore. And it's vital not only for our national security, but in safeguarding vulnerable people from harm. Since Channel rolled out, was rolled out nationally in April 2012, there have been more than 4,000 referrals to the programme. Of those referrals, hundreds have been provided support by trained intervention providers to help lead them away from radicalisation. However, we want to go further than preventing people, uh, preventing people from becoming terrorists. We want to focus on a broader approach to counter extremism, both violent and non-violent. Because where non-violent extremism goes unchallenged, the values that bind our society together fragment. Women's rights are eroded. Intolerance and bigotry become normalized. Minorities are targeted and communities become separated from the mainstream. So while by no means all extremism leads to violence, it creates an environment in which those who seek to divide us can flourish. As I've said, our approach needs to continually adapt. That's why the British government is currently reviewing contest to ensure the highest priorities are given the right resources, that government departments and agencies have a unified approach and that we ensure we're making an impact on our counterterrorism priorities overseas. Because this is a fight that cannot just be won at home. So we must go well beyond traditional counterterrorism policy. We can no longer afford to see our counterterrorism work at home and our counterterrorism work overseas as two separate entities. In the UK, we're forming a new joint unit for international counterterrorism, which brings together existing expertise in the Home Office and our Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And this new joint unit will drive our counterterrorism agenda abroad, our work with partners such as the Five Eyes, as well as influencing and supporting our work with multilateral organizations such as the EU and the UN. Because it's no good arresting a person in your own country if they cannot be brought to justice in theirs. It's no good ensuring world-class aviation security at home if people are not properly screened at airports abroad. And it's no good sharing intelligence with another country if they cannot act on it effectively. And it's no good fighting terrorism in and from Syria if we can't help stabilize that country and its neighbors. Now, I'm in Washington to attend the five-country ministerial with my counterparts in the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Together, we will expand upon the successful cooperation between our countries on issues of national security, which have, we've built over the past decades. And faced with the growing threat that I've described, we must act with more urgency, with greater joint resolve than we have before. We must be more open to sharing intelligence with our partners and more proactive in offering our expertise to help others.
we must counter the twisted narrative peddled by Daesh and show it for what it is, a perversion of Islam built on fear and lies. And we must organize our own efforts more effectively if we're to bring order to those failed states most beset by disorder and disarray. So at this week's five country ministerial, I will be calling for action on three key fronts. Action I believe to be essential if we're to defeat extremism and keep our people safe from terrorism. We need to work with vulnerable states to improve their ability to respond to the threat from terrorism. This includes providing advice on crisis management to helping them combat the extremist narrative from improving their investigative capacity to strengthening aviation security. For example, following the downing of the Russian Metrojet plane last year, we've been working with the Egyptians on improving security at the airport at Sharm el-Sheikh. In Pakistan and Nigeria, We've well-established programs to strengthen investigatory and prosecutorial frameworks for dealing with terrorism, underpinned by clear human rights principles. And that includes zero tolerance for torture and mistreatment, not only because that reflects our principles, but because we must reduce opportunities for extremists to feed grievance narratives. We would like to do more in fragile states and draw on the expertise of our partners because we need to be working together in these, with these countries to prevent atrocities happening, not just reacting in response to them. We also need to do more to stop the message of hate from spreading and prevent people from becoming radicalised. I've already mentioned that in the UK we're working with civil society groups who seek to challenge extremist messages and provide credible alternatives. And I'm pleased that last week the United Nations endorsed the UN Secretary General's Preventing Violent Extremism Plan, encouraging a whole system approach to counterterrorism. This is a welcome step, and the United Kingdom stands ready to support other countries with this work. Together with other Uni European Union member states, we continue to build capabilities at the European Internet Referrals Unit at Europol to secure the removal of terrorist propaganda from the Internet. The unit has expanded its lang language capabilities, which now includes Arabic, Russian, German, Dutch, and French. But we need other like-minded groups to come on board and reduce the scope for terrorist groups to spew their hate online. And I would like to see the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, Britain's Five Eyes partners, taking the same approach in working with communications service providers to tackle this propaganda. We need other like-minded groups to come on board from all corners of the world to reduce the scope, as I say, for terrorist groups to spew their hate online and undermine their twisted narratives. Finally, and most importantly, we need to bring much greater order and joint resolve to the disparate work taking place internationally and a comprehensive and coherent response to the common threat. It's great to see the potential of capacity-building initiatives in many countries, whether that's sharing intelligence between European agencies, training law enforcement in Tunisia, or counter-violent extremism projects with civil society groups in Kenya. These measures can have real impact. But governments and organizations often undertake similar things in the same place with too little join-up. Like-minded nations too often work in parallel rather than in partnership. And we need a much better understanding of what really works. Bodies such as the Global Counterterrorism Forum 
and the Radicalization Action Network regularly convene policymakers, practitioners, and experts from governments, multilateral organizations, and NGOs to discuss their approaches and to share best practice. But we must now focus on practical delivery and translate this expertise into action. There's been some useful progress in the past year. In December last year, the UN held the first meeting of Security Council finance ministers in its 70 years history. Together with our allies, we agreed on new measures to update the UN counterterrorism sanctions regime to focus on Daesh in order to deny it the access to the resources they need and to identify and exploit the vulnerabilities in their financial network. In the EU, after many years of negotiations, we reached agreement on the sharing of passenger name records on flights to, from, and within Europe, a crucial step in supporting our fight against terrorism. Further measures to raise the deactivation standards for firearms across Europe were agreed at the same meeting. But across the board, there is more scope for more action. Better information sharing between countries, more active use of passenger data to identify persons of interest, more thorough exchange of terrorist finance information, as well as work to improve protective security and crisis response. For the EU to deliver on the security of its members, it must be a forum for taking action and garnering a collective response. And then there is the opportunity we have together as Five Eyes countries to garner collective action. We enjoy the deepest, longest lasting security relationship in the world. The innovation of the Five Eyes Ministerial in 2013 provides us with a forum not just to share collective lessons on security and counterterrorism, but to take collective action. So this evening I've spelt out three of the most important priorities in our efforts. Building the capacity of those governments that need support to counterterrorism, preventing the pernicious spread of extremism, and ensuring that we collectively match international cooperation with coordinated international action that has real lasting impact on the ground. Because I'm clear that defeating terrorism requires a global response and we will not succeed by acting in isolation. This is the challenge of our generation. Extremism is spreading, threatening and taking lives, not just in our countries, but in other lands. It thrives in the disorder created by fragile and failing states. It's contributing to, and in some cases exploiting, mass migration. It's turning the benefits of modern technology to its twisted ends. If we're to deal with this threat effectively, we can no longer look simply for domestic solutions. There must be international cooperation, a common approach, free flows of intelligence and information, and the closing of technological gaps which the extremists exploit. Together, we can defeat terrorism. We can stop the spread of extremism. We can save lives, not only from terrible attacks, but from the damage and destruction which is wrought. It is a challenge for our generation, and it is a challenge that we must win. Thank you.
you very much, uh, Madam Secretary. That was a very powerful speech, and I thought what we could do is you and I would just chat for a few minutes, and then we'll uh, open it up to the audience. Um, you know, let's. I, I think your message about the international aspect is very important. I do want to get to that, but, but let's start at home, if you will, in the UK. This um, issue for every one of us, all those countries that are dealing with ISIS, um, of how you correctly balance uh, citizen rights, what you call, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the private lives of, of citizens, their security, their human rights, uh, but how you balance that, excuse me, with their security. How do you, in day-to-day -day action as the Home Secretary, think and work through that balance to get it right? Well, it's a, constant, uh, it's a constant issue that we have to be looking at, and you're right. And I suppose, in a sense, as, a, as Home Secretary, one of the tasks I have, often on a daily basis, um, which is to sign off the warrants for intrusive uh, surveillance, actually does just that. It's constantly looking at the necessity and proportionality of making of those decisions, um, which, of course, has to consider that balance between privacy and security. I think it's, it is, and obviously this is an issue that we have been thinking about very carefully in the legislation that we're introducing, um, legislation we've introduced in the past two years, but also our new investigatory powers bill. And that's why with, within our investigatory powers bill, we will be strengthening the safeguards for people in terms of the exercise of those powers, including, as I indicated earlier, this double lock, for example. Uh, currently, those warrants I will sign. In future, they would also be signed by a judge so that people have the accountability of the politician, but also the judicial oversight as well. And has the migration crisis changed fundamentally, you think, how um, the British public views this balance, or has there been a consistency of viewpoint um, in terms of how to, how to get this right? Well, the polling evidence in the UK is normally that a majority of people think, want to see law enforcement and intelligence agencies having the powers they need to keep people safe and secure. Of course, the migration crisis in Europe has raised some uh, further issues, as we've seen in relation to the possibility of people actually trying to exploit that as routes to get into, uh, the, U uh, into mm -hmm. the EU mm -hmm. in order to try to... Uh, uh, take out, uh, undertake attacks. Um, and that is a, you know, an issue that we have to be very well aware of and consider as we're looking at how we deal with the migration crisis. Mm -hmm. Also, sticking with the, the home front for the moment, I mean, you, you, I think you spoke very powerfully about the role of social media. Um, obviously, that's an international challenge, but as a government working in a sovereign territory, you've listed some of the tools, public-private partnerships, out, community outreach, um, it really is quite an evolving tool set compared to where counterterrorism probably was 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about what, to your mind, what further needs to evolve in that tool set? And maybe a little bit on measurement. You talked about that um, in terms of building partnership capacity, but it's true in all these areas. How good are we, how good are you at measuring in the UK, measuring um, our progress and knowing that we're investing in the right areas for counterterrorism? Well, it's, it, it's always one of those difficult areas, looking at measurement in, in, these, in the work on uh, preventing people from being radicalized, for example, and, and counterterrorism measures more generally. Because obviously, um, the impact you hope to have is a negative in the sense that you hope to stop somebody from doing something or stop somebody from being radicalized. 
But we have been looking at how we, how we uh, are able to measure these, and I think we can see and point to um, those areas that do have an impact. And that's an important part of the discussions we have internationally as well, is to be able to um, discuss among ourselves what it is that works, what it is that has most impact. But we need a whole range of tools in the tool set, as you describe it, in order to be able to deal with these issues today. And you mentioned one of those tools, of course, is information sharing, which is a, a challenge in almost any security realm. Um, where do you see the major stumbling blocks excuse me, going forward for counterterrorism information sharing? Well, I think it's important that when we're working together and sharing information, obviously you have to have um, a basic formats in which you're able to do that uh, and to do it in a way um, which recognizes the individual needs of, uh, of particular countries. And of course, not everybody uh, is, has perhaps developed their uh, capabilities in these areas in, in the same way. And so the, in, one of the important areas here is to have that constant international discussion to ensure that the work we're doing uh, as, for example, bringing the Five Eyes countries together to ensure that we are able to have not just information sharing for the sake of it, but actually something that's going to be useful. Right. You're here in the United States, as you said, you're, you're meeting with your Five Eyes counterparts, uh, but, but we are probably largely a U.S. audience. What are the, what's the one or two top things that are your ask list for the United States? What can we do? What should we be doing as part of the international effort against ISIS, or in particular, perhaps, to be helpful to the U.K. in its fight? Well, I mean, we, we all share the, the same threat and working together to, to deal with this threat. Um, I mean, one of the areas that I've talked about in my speech where um, we've been working uh, with the uh, United States and others, of course, is this whole area of countering violent extremism, but we would take that further into countering extremism. I think that's a discussion that will be, uh, be useful. Um, working within communities, helping communities to strengthen their resilience mm -hmm. against the extremists, against the people who seek to divide us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course also in terms of working with the United States, the fact that many of the major internet companies are situated here in the United States is, uh, is a key issue for us all. Great. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to open it up to the audience. Um, uh, uh, the secretary has to leave here at 6.15, so I'm going to group the questions. The questions do need to be in, on counterterrorism, please, because we have such limited time. Um, so again, I'll take maybe three questions at a time, and we'll start over here on the right. Please state your name and affiliation if you have an affiliation. Kim Dozier with The Daily Beast and CNN. Ma'am, in your position in government, um, you mentioned having to deal with the terrorist threat of refugee flows with Syrian forces now closing in on Aleppo, possibly Idlib next, it spells more refugee flows north. What pressure can be put on the Assad regime or Russia beyond what's already been put on them to stop this onslaught? Okay, and we'll take a few more. Let's see, we're gonna stick on the right-hand side right here, yeah. Uh, I'm Mark Hosenbaum from uh, Reuters. Uh, my question is, how do you reconcile, and these are questions I guess you're going to have to deal with over the years, the desire to suppress or somehow control uh, the uh, jihadist use of social media 
for propaganda purposes with things like the First Amendment uh, in the United States, which apparently you know, is supposed to grant absolute freedom of speech? And also, how do you reconcile the desire to suppress such messages with the desire of intelligence agencies to actually see those messages so they can try and track the bad guys? Good, and one more in this section. Uh, the gentleman in the blue shirt, sorry, I can't see you very well. Um, David Lawler with the Daily Telegraph. Um, just wondering, you talked a lot about the need for collective action tonight, and I wondered, um, does Britain play a more effective role in global counterterrorism within the EU than it would perhaps outside of the EU? Okay, so we've given you really easy questions. Solve, solve Syria, solve First Syria. Amendment rights, and yes, please go ahead. And um, it's obviously, I mean, things are evolving in relation to, uh, to the situation in Syria. We have had the, the recent discussions uh, that have taken place with Secretary Kerry and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov from, from Russia, and the, um, obviously the uh, agreement in relation to some element of ceasefire. Um, and I think we all recognize that actually finding a solution to the situation in Syria is obviously what we all want to do, and, and not just for the rest of the world, but crucially for all those millions of people who have been displaced in Syria, including the several million who are now in uh, refugee camps in primarily, obviously, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, and those who have come through to Europe. And uh, certainly, I know that uh, my colleague, Justine Greening, who's out of uh, International Development Secretary, says when she goes to the refugee camps and talks to the refugees, their overwhelming wish is to go home. They want to see that stability in Syria. Um, but this is no, there is no uh, magic solution that is suddenly going to deliver this. It's going to take a lot of diplomatic effort, as, as is already going in, and a lot more hard work in order to bring that, uh, to bring that about. Um, the issue of the jihadist use of social media, obviously this is a, um, a key issue that has, this is, if you like, a, the development, one of the developments that makes dealing with this counterterrorism today different from, from uh, what it was in the past. One of the key areas, of course, is the way in which they are using social media to put out their, um, their narrative to encourage and encouraging others by the use of that to be radicalized or to, to, to take some action. And that's why it's important that I think the mainstream voices who wish to oppose that, who wish to give a different view, a counter-narrative, um, are helped and encouraged to do that in a whole variety of ways. But we also need to make sure, I mean, we have in the UK what's called the Counterterrorism Internet Referral Unit, where the police are able to refer um, items of, uh, of, uh, which reach a certain threshold um, of illegality and to companies for the companies to take down. We've been building at Europol with others in, in Europe a similar uh, internet referral unit across Europe that is going to work to do exactly that. And I think it's over the last, the, the um, CTIU was set up in 2010 and it's taken down 140,000 pieces from the internet. The vast majority of those, I mean, well over 100,000, probably you're talking about 110, 120,000 of those in the last couple of years or so. So the pace at which material has been taken down has increased significantly. Um, Am I surprised that the Daily Telegraph asked about the U European Union? <laughs> Probably not. Um, look, the, the discussions in relation to Britain's uh, role in the uh, European Union, obviously there's a European Council meeting taking place later this week. Um, the negotiations have been continuing. I've been clear that what we've seen so far is a basis for a deal. 
um, and the ultimate decision will be taken for the, uh, for the British public, by the British public, you know, because individuals will have their opportunity to vote in the referendum. And at that time, obviously, all, some of these issues and others will be being put forward to, uh, to, to the people so that they can make that decision. So it's not for an individual politician to decide, it will be for the British people. Great, and that was our first violation of the counterterrorism only question, so let's try to do better in the next section of folks. We can start right here. Madam Secretary, uh, Will Watson with the Maritime Security Council. Uh, the United Kingdom, much like the United States, has vast uh, water uh, side uh, aspects as well as rivers that run up through its capital cities, like uh, the Houses of Parliament only meters from the Thames. Can you tell us about the, the unique challenge you have in trying to safeguard from the, from the water side against terrorism? Yes, thank you. Um, Marisa Lino with Northrop Grumman um, Corporation. Uh, Two-part question, uh, very quick. Is the Schengen Agreement on its deathbed? And a B, a slight follow-up to the gentleman who asked about the EU. Should the British public decide that uh, it wishes to leave the EU, would there be technical and legal issues that would make your life more difficult as Home Secretary? Thank you. Okay, Stay, sticking right on the border there of, of acceptable, and this uh, woman right back here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for your comments, Madam Secretary. My name is Jackie. I'm from the National Defense University. Um, my question regards your domestic counter-violent extremism programs. A lot of times there is a, a challenge with governments when they sponsor programs to then they have a government face and become seen as less legitimate within the community. Mm. How has Britain approached this and found credible partners to kind of mitigate that issue? Great. Thank you. Thank Over you. To you. Um, obviously the maritime issue does prevent a, um, a challenge uh, and that uh, it's important that we ensure that we have the resources not just, I mean, obviously I'm responsible for border force uh, in the United Kingdom in terms of the, uh, the Home Office responsibilities. And so the um, resources at border force, the ability to, for example, with our border force cutters to, um, to take action is an important part of, of, uh, of that. Um, and also ensuring that the um, uh, police and others have the capabilities that they need in relation to inland waterways, for example. And some of these were in fact seen uh, in the time of the Olympics, um, when obviously it was taking, uh, uh, there was uh, a lot of that activity taking place quite close to the River Thames, and the uh, resources were there in the Thames to be able to make sure that, uh, that it was possible to protect against the possibility of some sort of waterborne um, um, threat uh, attacking it. But it's something obviously we constantly have to look at, as you'll be aware from um, the Maritime Security Council. Um, uh, Schengen, I mean, we're not a part of Schengen, and we won't be a part of Schengen in the United Kingdom. Um, there is obviously, as you know, a lot of change taking place within the Schengen area in relation to um, borders. Some countries have re-established some controls at their borders as a result of what they've seen in terms of the migration crisis. All I can say is that from the meetings I attend, there is a strong will within those countries who are members of Schengen to try to keep the Schengen Agreement in place and to uh, keep, uh, but they do have certain capabilities within the agreement to be able to exercise emergency controls, for example, when it is necessary for them to do, to do so, and that's what they're doing at the, at the moment. Um, if the United Kingdom wasn't part of the European Union, obviously there are a number of arrangements we have within the European Union, um, particularly, for example, on law enforcement area, 
where it would be necessary to potentially negotiate new arrangements for those. So we have a European arrest warrant, for example, which is within the European uh, area. We went through this debate about the European arrest warrant in Parliament a, a year or so ago. Um, but obviously there were certain arrangements within Europe that would need to be looked at separately if we were not in, in the European Union. And on the legitimacy of working on countering violent extremism, of course this is always a challenge. Um, and uh, what's important, I think, is that we, one of the things we do is, is to work with community groups, with those people who ha want their mainstream voice to be heard and uh, helping them to do that. But we've, we've done something else as well. Last year in legislation, we put the prevent duty on a statutory basis. So the public sector now has um, a requirement in legislation that they will have regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into radicalization. And this applies to um, par parts of the public sector, including, for example, schools and universities. Uh, and it's interesting, we're now seeing a lot of people who working within those environments who are, um, yes, raising more challenges about what might be going on in, in institutions, uh, but it is uh, an important part of actually ensuring that people are recognizing and looking for the signs of radicalization and taking action where that occurs. Okay, we are gonna finish off with our group here on the left and see if there are any questions on that. They're completely complacent, that's fantastic. So um, why don't we do, uh, uh, no follow-ons, why don't we do this gentleman back here who's waited patiently and we'll make it Two quick questions and wrap up. Thank you, Minister. Uh, Ryan Brown with CNN. Um, the Europol and uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency both released threat assessments. Uh, Europol uh, in January said that there were training camps in EU member states as well as the Balkans that were associated with Daesh. Um, do you, is your threat assessment that the UK, does that reflect the things you're noticing in your own threat assessments? And as well as uh, the D Defense Intelligence Agency said that an attack by Daesh was likely in 2016 or an attempted attack. Is it, would you share that assessment as well? Okay, and I had one last question. Yep, just wait for the microphone. Uh, greetings, my name is Samira Daniels. Uh, in, res in respect to your counterterrorism efforts in Britain, um, in, in trying to get the moderates to, uh, you know, to participate in, in counterterrorism efforts, don't you think that it uh, produces a kind of dialogue that actually furthers uh, more extremist or, uh, you know, it's a special kind of uh, relationships with the moderates that may not really be that helpful? I've been, I can't, I can't be more specific than that. Um, on, if I just take that second question first, um, obviously you always have to think carefully about how you're presenting the arguments. Um, but if you take the view that the very presentation of a counter-argument is going to encourage the, 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 the narrative that you're trying to oppose, then you end up actually not saying anything and you just leave the space completely open for the extremists. It is so important that we do um, pro provide that counter-narrative, that we do work with um, community groups. And there are many people who do want their voice to be heard 
and challenge. Uh, and, for example, people who will say, when they see these terrorist attacks, they are not in my name. So members of Muslim communities who will be very clear, this is not in my name, and will want to come forward and make their, make their views clear. Um, so we do work with, but I, it's important not to leave the space completely clear for the extremists to be able to give their narrative. We do need to be able to counter that narrative. And on the issue of the threat, obviously in the United Kingdom, the threat level is set independently of ministers. It's set by our Joint Terrorism Analysis Center. Um, and we have five levels of threat. We're at the, um, not at the highest level, but at the next highest at the moment, which is severe, which means a terrorist attack, attack is highly likely and could happen without warning. Well, uh, Madam Secretary, you've been extremely generous with your time. I know you have another engagement. There's no rest for you on these short trips, another engagement immediately following this. Um, so I just want to ask the audience to join me in thanking you for stopping by CSIS today. Thank you. Thank you.